Graduate Environment Network's podcast, PenPod. Today, I'm chatting with Will Clark. Will recently graduated from his undergraduate studies at the University of Melbourne and is taking a pause from his studies to work as a sustainability consultant at an abattoir before starting a Master of Environmental Science. Will has a ton of useful tips and resources for those starting out in the environmental sector. I hope you find this chat insightful and make sure to follow the podcast and to check out the many other amazing shows in the Climactic Network. We're so happy to have him here today and love just for starters if you could tell me about who you are and where you're from and a little bit about your path to where you are today. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Cam. Really enjoyed the pod so far. So I'm Will Clark. Uh, I'm 22. I just graduated from the University of Melbourne doing a Bachelor of Science. I originally started mechanical engineering, realized calculus wasn't as easy as I thought it would be. And so I decided to do environmental science instead because I still want to follow my passion in environment. How long into your degree did you decide to make that switch? I think that's something that a lot of us go through. Why, why did I start studying this? Yeah, I made the switch after my first year uh, because, you know, when you are at school and you see like a subject you don't really like, that was me most days. I was just like, I want to love this, but I'm not loving it. And so I went farming for that summer, as I always do, went farming. And I, was, I just thought, environments is where I want to be. But it's the design part, that sort of part of engineering interested me, but I wasn't, there wasn't a fire in my gut to do it. And so when I made the transition to environmental science, that's what really ignited that passion so you did your studies and then how did you get into environments? So I've finished my science degree halfway through this year and got accepted into the Master of Environmental Science. But I thought I went straight into university after year 12. And I thought, well, I should probably take a break, enter the workforce, see what happens, if I love it, if I need to study. It just gives you a better perception of what needs to be done, um, just like career and life-wise. So what sort of led me to the path, though, was I've been working at Elevate Education uh, throughout my entire university course. The most important thing I gathered from Elevate, though, was communication skills. So scientists are notoriously bad communicators. We get into our shoots, we don't want to say anything, we don't want to be wrong, and all of a sudden you get into the real workforce and you've got to explain your ideas and communicate to people and you can't do it. And so I took this communication skill that I developed at Elevate I decided, I was like, oh, well, I would like to do more. I really want to sort of expand my desire to work in the environmental science space, but also with communication and stuff like that. And I was, you know, trekking along. And I was, as I was studying, I was doing uh, problem solving the environment uh, last year. And we had this assignment and I was putting it off, to put it lightly, I was putting it off. And one morning, I was crazy hungover, like can't even describe how hungover I was. Had to have like two parrots to get through. And I was thinking, oh, I need help with this assignment. I'll go to the lecturer and ask the lecturer for help. So I go to the lecture and I'm not, I'm not sharp mentally, like I'm, I'm, I'm asleep. And all of a sudden, this person walks in from Project Everest Ventures, or PEV that I'd like to call it. And 
all of a sudden they start talking about this trip that you can do. It's an internship. You can work in solar in Africa. You can use like university funding, get it as a subject. And I was like, all right, <laughs> listening now. <laughs> and so I decided, oh, PEV sounds super cool. Let's do it. Now, of course, the main issue was university student, not very rich, can't really afford a sudden trip to Africa. So what I decided to do was do it as a subject. So at university, what you can do is you can get an OS help loan or overseas help loan. And what that gives you, it gives like six grand to help you travel to your destination to study, to work. And because I was doing the science and technology internship subject, I ticked the box right away. Also got a scholarship, which was awesome. Uh, and so I was able to fund this trip. And the trip was to go to Malawi, which is in Southern Africa. And the job I was doing with PEV was solar consulting. So the issue over there, the main problem is that 89% of the population has zero access to electricity. So they've got nothing. Even the grid, the grid itself is really unstable. So the goal there is to sell these Pico solar units. So they're about the size of an A4 textbook, for example. And what's really cool is what the business is designed to solve a social problem rather than just like trying to create like a charity to solve the problem. So the benefit of using enterprise to solve social problems, which is what PEV does, the goal is to build a business in that country that can sustain itself. And so we hired and recruited locals, We've got this good business going on, it's working, but it needs to grow. And so therefore the challenge was how do you expand your reach in a country that doesn't have a good grid system? And so the way we went about it was with three experiments. We tried using Facebook and WhatsApp, which sort of worked, but weren't as effective as we, as we liked. We tried to get a bulk SMS system running, but that had some legal issues that we had to work through. But lastly was to use a non-government organization called DAP, so the Developmental Aid from People to People. The goal of this organization is they train teachers and they do ag stuff, they do a whole bunch of projects. Sign up two sales agents, increase the reach of the business, and achieve the goal. And that's mainly because of the skills I learned with communicating, the skills I picked up at university, but also with PEV, they do a ton of training for you. So social entrepreneurship, how to structure a business, how to do lean canvas. Lean canvas is just awesome. So if you have a business problem, just do a lean canvas and you'll probably figure out the answer. It also helps you identify people based on their bird type. It sounds really weird, but it's really helpful. So for example, in one of my meetings with Tim at DAP, he's a peacock. And what a peacock is, is someone who's like flamboyant, showy, they love talking, and that was Tim to a T. And because I knew his personality type, I could tailor that meeting towards him. Whereas in a different meeting, I was dealing with a dove person. And then they're like more shy, they're high emotional intelligence, more reserved. And because of that, I was like, okay, I'll tailor it this way. I have to ask, which bird are you? Oh, I'm an eagle. So the four birds, just so we know, is eagle peacock, owl, and dove. So eagles are like very much bold and classic leadership archetypes. Uh, an eagle is someone who is very much decisive, intense, wants to give stuff a go. Now peacocks on the other hand, they're really like flamboyant, showy. They love like being the center of attention. They love having fun. So an owl is someone who's analytical. They're the type of person who needs to see all the information before they make a decision. They're like, they're wise, hence they're owls. They take time making decisions, analytical. Um, doves are your peacekeepers. So they really care about other people, 
very emotionally engaged. They're empathetic, they care a lot about others, and everyone's a mix of this, so everyone's no, there's no exception to the rule. And so that's what helps you like interact with people fast, like, okay, I know what this person likes, so it just helps you engage with people faster. And what I found is what not only did I learn a lot, but also like develop these structures and these habits and these systems to get through difficult situations. And what it fundamentally accumulated in is this thing called identity capital. What is identity capital? Identity capital is basically something that helps you stand out from the crowd when you approach someone, whether it be just a random conversation or a job interview. But the issue is everyone's got a degree. And a degree is important, don't get me wrong. But it's like, okay, what can I do that help me identify stuff? You make a great point here that a lot of us have similar degrees and skill sets. So a lot of it becomes a question of how do we fill in these gaps in the bullet points on our resumes? Yeah, 100%. I mean, what people don't buy the product, they buy from people. People want that connection. They're not looking for like, oh, they, yes, they want to tick boxes. That's what HR is for. HR literally will look through and say like, okay, do you meet the job requirements tick? But when it comes to that face-to-face -face sort of stuff, you want to build that rapport with the person. My tactic is to ask questions about themselves. Like, oh, tell me more about you. Or for example, with another interview I had further on down the line, which I can tell about, talk about if you want. He was going on about like, oh, like this is how we do things, stuff like that. I was like, oh, how does that work? Like, can you tell me more about that? And all of a sudden he gets more excited. It's like, whoa, this guy is actually interested in what I have to say. And it's that connection building. That's what identity capital really does. So you can either start an org like organization, like my friend, her organization's called Undivided. Definitely check it out. Um, and what she does is she makes these tailored packages for people, whether you be halal or Hindu, whatever it may be, and makes sure that these people get the resources they need. And that's identity capital right there. Like, yes, she's taking advantage of a crisis to do something really good for the community. And that's sort of like how you develop that process. But you can talk about like hardships. Humans either love talking about something that frustrates them, like airports, or they love talking about stuff they like, like pizza. <laughs> Just a quick question. Do you have any resources that you'd recommend that speak to identity capital that you're talking about? Excellent question, Cam. The book that I'm really referencing is a book called The Defining Decade by Meg Jay. She's an American clinical psychologist, and it's about her story looking at 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, and 40-year-olds, and the things that you should be developing in your 20s now that make 30s and 40s a lot easier. But a really cool thing she raises is the idea of identity capital, which is the sort of the main takeaway I had, but also the idea of buying jam. So they do this experiment where participants are asked to buy a sample of jam. First group are given six flavors of jam. And it's really easy for them to decide because it's only six flavors. Like, oh, I like raspberry, I like strawberry. The next group were given 24 samples, I think. It was 36 or something like that. So way more options no one could pick. Very few people could actually make a choice on what color jam they wanted. And the same goes for people in their 20-year-olds, people going through uni, people just emerging from uni. It's this paradox of you have all this choice, but you don't know what to do with it. Are you saying that you think that in terms of when a graduate or student is applying to jobs, you should really wait to apply until the jobs that really answer to your interests and skills come along instead of broadening your net and applying to everything that you think that you could probably do? Yeah, that's pretty much it. That tips in particular is more for people who have no idea what they want to do. So that's where that 
tip really comes in handy. The identity capital is really good if you know what you want to do. Like, oh, awesome. Okay, I want this experience. So I'm going to gather this sort of story around myself to sell to that business. But if you're thinking, oh man, I'm not quite sure. I'm not really sure what I want to do. That's where the jam problem comes in. What is it that fires me up? What is interesting about it? As long as you sort of narrow your options down to six, picking for jam, find what you really are interested in looking for, and that makes it easy to go through that process. Something else I'm thinking about is that we can limit our jams, right? But there's also an element of total randomness. And that's something I saw in the pen panel as well, that people were happening upon job opportunities through chance circumstances. So I think that yes, limit your jams, but also put yourself out there, strategically, I suppose. For those who are already sure about what they want to do and who have built identity capital, limiting your jams may be easy. But for us 24 jams people, you should try more jams in order to figure out which six you prefer. Try more stuff. Try all the jams. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And it's just like being open-minded to different experiences because you'll be surprised like where the opportunity can take you further along down the line. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about what you're doing today and about what you're thinking for the future of your career and studies. Sure thing, yeah. I'll start with studies because that's the fastest one. Um, so I have deferred my Masters of Environmental Science because of the reasons I said before, I want to get into the workplace and try new things. Um, and also uh, with COVID, I just felt like for me personally, as someone who likes being in the classroom and someone who likes you know, being on site and actively learning, I just thought it might be better off just to wait and develop more. But that's just me personally. That could be anyone. So what I decided to do was, all right, I want to work. Um, and so as I was finishing my exams, I saw a job post on LinkedIn and it was for Clean Power Co, which is a solar company based in Melbourne. And I was like, oh, awesome. Like I fill a bunch of the boxes, I'll shoot a CV and I'll have a crack. And it went really well. Got the job, got on really well with the company. The company's like really cool. They're all good people, they're all nice. Aims to deliver a good product. Um, actually, one of my previous customers, she installed her panels last week, which was really cool. So I did this uh, role where basically I'd go to other people's houses and do solar consultations. So just to make sure, is solar worthwhile for you? Is it valuable? And make sure you know you get the right setup based on your energy consumption. So that was sort of my job for a few months and I really enjoyed the work in solar because I learned a lot about residential solar and how much it's improving to like bills and stuff like that and how much a good investment it is but for me the obviously coronavirus 2020 who would have thought um, with the coronavirus the thought of me in the event that I got it and I was visiting all these houses I could be passing it to people and that was just like me personally it was just a sort of like bit of anxiety that I had with the job and even though I really loved the job, I loved, I love solar, I still love solar and the power it has to empower people and improve their lives in terms of financially and also, you know, um, environmentally, that just didn't sit well with me. And especially with the new lockdown, I was like, nah, this isn't right. This isn't for me. Just not right now. Just not right now. It's not right. So I started looking again and luckily my dad came up to me and was like, I am about to open this new abattoir. The issue is it's been neglected for a really, really long time. I just need someone who knows stuff about environmental science. I want to be a net energy exporter to the grid. As you know, animals can produce a lot of waste, use a lot of water. I need someone to help me figure out how to do it better. I was like, 
you're my, I'm a guy, I'm your guy. I got it sorted. I'm, I'm your guy. So I always felt a bit iffy because, you know, nepotism is always a bit, mm. but someone told me, uh, one of the contacts I'm helping to help build the solar part of the property. He said, nepotism ends the first five minutes into the job. Because nepotism could land you anywhere, like presidency for all we know. But that doesn't matter if you get the position and you do nothing with it. Like that just proves that, that just proves the point. Whereas then you get in there and all of a sudden everyone's like, well, you actually got all this work done in a week. We haven't gotten this work done in three months. And, and just from that, if you like get there like, okay, I've been grateful for the position. Let's get this done. Let's hammer it out. You prove yourself. Then it doesn't really matter. It's about creating those opportunities. And so what I'm doing right now is I'm working at a previously closed abattoir. Hopefully it's going to be open in the next few months. But my goal is to make it far better environmentally wise. And the way I'm going to do that is through water, energy, and soil. So when it comes to water, they didn't have a wastewater treatment system before we arrived. It was literally just a sieve and a dam. So they used anaerobic lagoons. So if you've done uh, any wastewater science at university, you'll know that there's anaerobic, aerobic, and sometimes a facultative lagoon. And that helps you treat wastewater through biological process. The problem with this place is that it's been neglected for so long, those dams don't function anymore. So what I, my solution has been to figure out, okay, it has to be lean, lean canvas, which I learned at PEV. It has to be cost efficient, but it has to comply with X, Y, and Z, and also be like good environmentally which is a bit of a big problem. Can you just go into a little bit more detail about what Lean Canvas is? Excellent question. So Lean Canvas is really just like a model for businesses. And what Lean Canvas is, it's, um, it's classic Elon Musk. So Elon Musk uses this uh, called first principle thinking. First principle thinking is about trying to break down a problem to its smallest pieces. And from those smallest pieces, work on a solution. So Lean Canvas is pretty much the exact same thing. It's sort of like a rectangle. It breaks it down into seven steps. So Lean Canvas works on seven steps. Step one is two things, problem and customer segment. So if you can identify a problem, you can also identify a customer segment. So for example, with solar in Malawi in Africa, the problem is no one has electricity. The customer segment is 16 million people who don't have electricity. So boom, customer mm -hmm. segment. Number two is your unique value proposition. So what is unique about your product solution idea that's gonna provide something that no one else can? So for example, uh, Apple, uniquely designed, simplistic, all that stuff. Three is your solution. So what are you, how are you gonna solve that problem? Four is channels. And channels depends on what industry you're in. So if it's like um, you're trying to sell a product like an entrepreneur, Channels is how you get to your customer. So it could be online, it could be with a store, it's like how you get there. Number five has two parts, like number one. So number five is cost structure, what loses money, and revenue structure, what gains you money. And those are sort of like, if you have five, it's pretty much like the main focus of any business, what's losing money, what's gaining money. And in terms of the water situation, if you don't comply with EPA standards, you lose your license and that costs you tons of money and tons of time. So that's a massive, obviously this is more like risk stuff, but you can still put into your revenue structure, right? You can still lose money from it. So therefore, what are the potential gains from this situation? Well, we can put in a wastewater system that will not only treat the water,
that can save water. So instead of having to pump that hundreds of kilolitres a day, you reduce that by 40 to 50%, reuse it on your plant, and that way you're saving water, saving money, and protecting the environment at the same time. Also, it lets you do more stuff with the water, which is like not poisoning the soil or anything like that. Two more steps of lean canvas. Number six is key metrics. So you make a decision, how do you measure and monitor that situation? That's really what it is. And then number seven is your unfair advantage. An unfair advantage is sort of like UVP, but it's more on the basis of like, what's like a unique aspect that just like blows the competition out of the water. So for example, an unfair advantage with Nepotism. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty unfair. Um, I would say Telstra actually. Telstra has an unfair advantage because it owns the majority of the telephone links in the country, right? So it owns a lot of the infrastructure that's really expensive to produce. So that gives it an unfair advantage in the market. And that's why a lot of companies will just leech off of their system because it's way too expensive to make another one. And that's sort of how Lean Canvas works. It gives you this basic building block structure. And if you look it up, it literally looks like a stack of Legos stacked on top of each other. And it helps you, okay, how do I redefine a business problem? Because sometimes if you go into an interview and an interviewer will ask you a question like, this is like hypothetical. They ask you a question, what's a problem you see in construction? Which is something I've been asked actually. What's a problem in construction? Well, either you know a lot about construction, but if you don't, then you're going to say, well, I don't know a lot about construction. But what I do know is this structure of any construction business on the planet. And from this structure, I could see that, oh, you're probably losing, you know, you're probably losing X amount of efficiency by, you know, buying parts from here when you could source them locally, for example, just like hypothetically. So you're looking at, okay, if I'm looking at the sort of like business structure of a construction company and I see... Oh, let's use admin, actually. Admin's a way better example because admin's always way too bloated. You look at admin and say, like, oh, actually, you don't need five accountants because, yes, you have to do a ton of payroll, but realistically, you can automate the system and then cut your labor in half. And so what that tells the, cust what tells the interviewer is, like, oh, you actually understand the overall structure of business because you have these seven key building blocks. And then from there, you can go, oh, you, you recognize opportunities, really just like duplicates on its own. And that's sort of like how opportunity works. Like I like to think that the harder you work, the luckier you get. So the more you work and the more you try and try and test things and do things, you're creating a wider opportunity to build weak ties. And weak ties are in the Defining Decade book. And it's the idea that by these weak ties, you sort of gain more access to new networks and new lines of careers and jobs. Because the job market is going to be more competitive than ever. You know, um, I think the unemployment numbers are now like 7 to 8% or 7 to 9%. Like it's quite a large number. And now everyone's flocking to universities and there's, you know, obviously it's very chaotic right now. But if you find these opportunities to help you differentiate, that's what helps you build the skills, build the knowledge and hopefully land in that space. It doesn't have to be the exact job you want. Like when I started the solar job with Clean Power Co, I wasn't 100% sure I wanted to be a salesman, but I had that skill from all the times that I'd done presenting at schools, working in Africa, I'd built that skill base up. And so it helped me 
get into that industry, but do different things in the industry. I think that's what's really cool about trying new stuff and, and seeing what's out there. Because yes, it is very tricky right now, but you can still prospect. You have the internet. If you have the internet and a device to access it, you have access to more information in the history of the world. Like Isaac Newton would be frothing right now if he could have all this information. <laughs> Mind you, wouldn't be out with it. without him. We wouldn't even have it in the first place. But that's what's really cool. And even though Isaac Newton in the 17, 1700s, Isaac Newton during a plague, isolated from his house, he had to leave Cambridge, isolated in his house, came up with calculus and the theory on gravitation, like built his idea on gravity from his own home. So. What are you guys doing? <laughs> but that's really cool. That's really cool because there's opportunities even though it's really difficult right now. Shout out if you have a high school alumni that's like pretty decent, get onto it. I didn't really think about like some of my high school alumni, but now that I've actually like looked into it, I've made like two really great connections that are helping me out big time. So it's just like the University of Melbourne itself has an alumni. Like if you've graduated, you're part of the Melbourne alumni. <laughs> so, but you, any university education institution, you're part of it. You can access it. I'm so sorry. We went on a huge tangent. You were telling me about <laughs> yeah. water and you hadn't yet gone into energy and soil. That's so fine. <laughs> um, very, very quickly. One of the interesting things that I didn't realize was how much electricity it costs to produce animal products. So like the whole process, it's crazy how much like detail goes into making a steak and how much like safety and compliance goes into it. But what that boils down to is a lot of energy use. It uses a lot of refrigeration. Refrigeration is the biggest because you've got to keep it fresh. There's also factors of lights, even like lighting can ramp up costs, heating, all this sort of stuff. And so I just thought, well, there's opportunity here because they're using like some energy usage per year is like up a million dollars. Insane. So what I was thinking like, okay, opportunity for renewable energy because yes, you're going to have to supplement with loads from the grid. That's true. But just because of how much energy is being used, but you can still offset your emissions by doing this thing called cogeneration. So what cogeneration involves is basically diversifying your energy portfolio. So one of the problems here is that they have a blackout about once a year, which is fine. Most people, most places do. It's very common in Australia just because of the way our power is transmitted. So what that means is in the event of a blackout and you've got product on the line, that product can actually get damaged because if it's on there for too long, you can't sell it because it fails certain requirements, right? So instead of getting solar to power the entire plant, you target where solar powers stuff. So it won't, like you'd need like probably, oh, I can't even remember how many it was, but you probably need like over a hundred panels just to do refrigeration. Like that's how much energy we're talking about. And so instead of trying to do all of it, target what you use. So with solar, I'm thinking, okay, backup power, lights, um, some form of heating, basic, like anything like lower yield energy and just leave refrigeration because refrigeration is about 50%. And if you power the other 50% with solar, you're off to the races. Then there's this also this process with using boilers um, in rendering plants. And the boiler here is powered by gas. And so I, and the solution here is to potentially, okay, why don't we take waste material and use it to power it with biogas? And that's just like other ideas 
that have sort of like spawned of like, okay, there's this really cool opportunity, let's diversify energy. And that's something that a lot of companies should do anyway. Like Australia still relies on a lot of black coal to power the grid. It's still about 49%, I'm pretty sure it is. And so what that means is solar, it's growing, but it's gonna need to grow a whole lot faster if we're gonna be able to combat this climate, whole climate change situation. And what's even weirder is that people are really quick to pat themselves on the back with this whole climate change stuff. Like they released a report today saying like, oh, by June, Australia reduced its emissions by 8% and it's lowest than it's been since 1998. That's great, but planes aren't flying. That's why, that's why. Like you just, you basically did nothing and it reduced the problem. And that's not action on climate change. That's just doing nothing. And so therefore the challenge is to think, okay, Renewables are the way put forward because they are cheaper, they are more sustainable. How do we implement this effectively into a complex system, not just like abattoirs, but everywhere, transport, yada, yada, yada. And that's what's really cool about environmental science is because, <laughs> is because you get this holistic approach to this problem. Because an engineer is someone who's going to be really good at the technical aspect of it. But one of the things that we always forget is that thermodynamics sucks. It is the most brutal force of nature because you know, regardless of what you do, you lose energy due to heat and friction. It just happens. It has to happen. So what that means is you have to think, okay, how can we either recapture it? How do we implement this other thing to support it as well? Do we mix with wind and solar? Do we use hydrogen? All this sort of stuff is what is interesting about... This is what gets me all excited about this opportunity is because uh, even though animal products have this um, reputation for using a lot of land, water, energy, you can still make the process better. Like you can use cattle to heal desertification. You should, um, there's a guy called Alan Savory. So Alan Savory, how to fight desertification. It is with cows. And what the reason why that is, is because you have to use the right methods of farming. That's what sort of people sort of like, get a bit confused about the whole agriculture situation is that there is different schools of thought in agriculture and it's about which one you pick will have the best net impact for the environment. Like for example, almonds are some of the worst water users in Australia or cotton. Like we grow way too much cotton in this country or almonds. Like almonds are not great for the Murray-Darling Basin for a range of reasons which I won't go into. But that's the thing, right? You can always argue that one product is, has its demons. And so with cattle who have historically not a great track record, there is actually all these opportunities to make it amazingly green and clean product. And people are already doing it. We have to transform our societies. So you're totally right. To be successful in the space, you really have to be cognizant of what the reality of the situation is rather than passing judgment on some of the more environmentally controversial solution, um, areas like meat eating. We should be focused on making those sustainable instead of trying to turn people away from them altogether. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with that. And I think that's really important is to have that discourse between the industries. Because if you look at meat consumption across the world, it's going up. Like people eating more meat than ever before. And yes, it is a massive environmental problem. But if we look at the market trend and because cash is king, we have to say to ourselves, okay, yes, veganism is good but if we're looking at it like realistically okay 
we're eating more meat than ever, let's up the game of the meat industry. Same with you know, transport, same with electricity. They can all be improved. It's, not, it's like saying aeroplanes are inherently evil. No, they're just inefficient for what we need them to be. I personally love meat and that's okay. When I'm in the supermarket shopping, I'm like, okay, I know what I'm looking for. Like I know, okay, what is good quality? Where has it come from? What is like the type of practices used on that property? Stuff like that. And because, you know, supermarkets have up their standards on animal welfare, I know, okay, this product is going to be not only good for me to eat because it will help me be healthy, but also it's going to help make sure that I'm upholding my, want, my desire to make the planet a better place. It's really awesome what it can do. It just needs to be done properly. And that's like with anything. If it's done properly, it can be amazing. And that's where like sort of like the meat industry can now up its game. Yeah, I think you're not going to be able to apply the same solutions everywhere. You have to listen to local needs and local wants. And in this case, the market. The market is telling yeah. us that people want meat. And even though as an environmentalist, I think that the industry yeah, right is. now is bad. It's, it's just as unrealistic to think that I'm going to convince the whole world to give up meat. Because like, if you look at some of the productions in Brazil, like the way they make soybeans, it's terrible. They're burning down yeah. the Amazon rainforest. And of, that's objectively a terrible way of doing it, right? But the issue is that they export cheap soybeans, which is used to make vegetable oil, which is used to fry your burger and fry your French fries, right? And Or your veggie burgers. Or your veggie burgers, exactly. I appreciate you not dodging the bullet there. And so that's the, that's the thing, right? You can still enjoy the meat that is provided to you. Obviously, it's, hard, it's harder on the consumer, right? It's harder to make that decision. I tried to make pulled pork last week. I was literally holding two pieces of pork shot in my hand and like, okay, this is this price, but this is that price. And I was literally trying to figure out which one was more environmentally friendly. And it's hard, it's difficult. So the responsibility of the industry is to make that easier for the consumer. It's like, hey, mm -hmm. this meat is processed at this plant where they export energy to the grid. That's how much renewables they're producing. And then it's produced by this farmer who uses this holistic form of agricultural management that allows them to do this and sequester carbon to the soil. Easy, easy buy. And yeah. That's the really cool challenge we face is how do we make it easier to be environmentally friendly? Like, and that's the sort of where I think environmental scientists are going is because mm -hmm. now as the technology becomes more mainstream, you don't have to sacrifice the economy for the environment. That's like some, a misconception a lot of people get. It's not true. There's some sacrifices, yes. It's not like you lose one completely. You still have it. It's about like, yes, sacrifice and opportunity costs exist. But it's like trying to figure out, like environmentalists have this unique challenge of doing it. But I think it can be done. Yeah, I think what we're getting at right now is the notion of evolution versus revolution. That's kind of how I think yeah, about for sure. it. Because I'm really concerned about the climate crisis and I think our system is causing a lot of damage, both in societal outcomes and ecosystem outcomes you name it. And while I would love to just start over and blow up the system and everybody live in lovely communes, if I'm being a pragmatist, I don't think that that's possible in the time frame that we have. I think it's actually more, more advantageous to tweak the system 
evolve it so that it is more efficient, it does have better societal outcomes, because no matter how you rail and scream at the system, if, if you're not going to have a difference and you're not going to be able to make a change that we need to see in the short time frame that we have, what's the point? What we need to then break down to is break it down to that first principles once again, right? So what does an environmental science need to help tweak the system like we were saying? Well, first of all, we need to be good communicators. That's like number, number one. Because if you can't express your ideas and connect, build that connection, you're dead in the water. Like you've got no chance of making any progress, right? So it's really important to get those communication skills. How do you get them? Easy. Either A, do it for a job. Uh, if you can, join Elevate Education or a similar company where you'll go to schools and you'll practice public speaking for a job. That's a really good place to start. If you can't, debating club. Number three, practicing speaking and writing is the first go-to spot. The second thing that we all need to start doing is also being better listeners. Like yes, environmental sciences, we know a lot of stuff, but what usually happens, at least in my experience, is like start telling someone about like, oh, like, you know, I love this wind farm. Like the wind farm's cool. It's generating electricity. It's dropping prices. And people are like, no, no, it's like infrasound, bro. And it's like, no, what are you talking about, mate? That's not true. And they get defensive. They start like acting up and stuff like that. Like I, I was once in a screaming match directed at me. Like this guy was just like, you believe in that hippie climate change stuff? I was like, it's not a belief, it's a fact, mate. It's, a, it's carbon dioxide. We know about, we've known about this compound for years. We know what it does. I got really right up. I got really angry. I was like, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. But if I actually took the time and listened to what he was talking about, I would actually been able to foster a better connection. It's like, oh, I, I can sort of see what you mean by that. But if you look at X, Y, and Z, that's not quite true. So this is probably the better way of looking. And it's like having that more like discussion-based rather than like sort of riling each other up. It's like... If you've ever seen Muhammad Ali, there's a very famous clip where he's like on the ring and this guy's just throwing punches at him and he misses constantly. Muhammad Ali is just like bobbing and weaving. And once the guy gets tired, Muhammad Ali just gives him a bit of a shoulder like wiggle like this. And that's what it feels like, I think, for environmental science. You just like slip the punches for a bit. You just like get in the zone, listen, hear them out, even though you're like, that's a lie, that's a lie, that's not true, that's a misconception. <laughs> you sort of bob and weave and you're like, you, you listen your way through, you try and understand why they think that. And so like you sort of like get used to being uncomfortable in that situation, then you can retort and say like, oh no, I hear you, but it's like this for X, Y, and Z. And so that's yeah. what I think scientists especially need to get more comfortable with. Communicating and listening, top, top two. Data analysis is something that I've had to learn over and over again. It's really useful. Just like knowing the numbers, working with numbers. You don't have to be an expert, but you just like understand quantities. So for example, like trying to understand quantities is really helpful. So if you imagine like a million dollars, a million's quite a lot. But if you think on it in terms of a million seconds, it's like a few months. Whereas in with a billion seconds, it's 31 years. So you've gone from a few months to 30 years. It's a massive time jump. And so what that lets you do is it helps you conceptualize numbers. So when people look at like, oh, there's 430 parts per million carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, it doesn't really mean a lot of information to people. So what um, the ABC recently did for Fight for Planet A, they got balloons and they showed how much CO2 that looks like per person for the average year. And Australia's the worst. 
Australia's the worst emitter per capita in the world. And why is that? We're a small population, but we live like kings of the earth. We're really lucky in Australia. We're the lucky country for the reason. And so if you show that in terms people can see, and it helps you build that connection far easier. Neil deGrasse Tyson, he's a master of analogy. Neil deGrasse Tyson once gone to a breakfast show, and the breakfast host asked him, oh, how do you justify, I forget the number, but how do you justify $1.3 billion a year on NASA funding? And he's like, well, $1.3 billion, that's how much America spent on lipstick last year. And then the guy's like, what? And he takes something that people can recognize every day and then apply it to a very complex topic. Be comfortable in expressing your ideas because when it comes to my situation now, my job, I'm sitting at a board meeting with CEOs and directors and officers and I have to justify my position for water treatment and solar instead of trying to be like, oh, well, it's because it's the right thing to do. No, they don't care about that. They care about the money. They care about it making economic sense. They care about it forwarding the business. And then instead of that, I'd be like, okay, we're going to save this amount of water per year. So you're going to save costs on just water. And then we're going to do this. And then we're going to do that. And, the, and it helps them make sure that they understand not just, not only are they on board, but now they want it. Now they're like, okay, it's something we need. And that's the sort of approach that we should take. Well, the, you know, there's benefits everywhere to being more sustainable. And if you just listen, you'll start to get an idea of what the person you're talking to cares about. And you can tailor your argument to that person. If it's money, it's money. If it's family, you know. With the average Australian, it's security. So like what wins elections is will this help me feed my family? Will I keep my job and will I keep my house? That's the sort of main things people are worried about and then from there you can build on it. So for example, one of the reasons why Labor lost the election last year is like they had a really great idea for electric cars. They're like, yeah, we want to be like producing electric cars in Australia. Awesome, great economic opportunity right there, but sold badly. And so they didn't, weren't able to connect those two dots because you'll have job security by protecting the environment but people thought they were two separate things, when actually they're interconnected. Yeah, so it doesn't matter how much work you've done in the background, how right you're, you are, if the people who need to implement it don't believe it. Or and don't get it. that's where yeah. communication comes in. And we've seen this, and you've given you know, so many examples of, of all these instances in history where people were right, but because it wasn't sold properly, it just didn't happen. We have to work with what we're given. We have to tweak it and make it evolve to a place that looks correctly or else we're just not gonna get the job. 100%, it's resourcefulness. At the end of the day, it's resourcefulness. You're, you're absolutely yeah. right. Do you have any final bits of advice, resources, anything at all that you'd like to share with our listeners about making their contribution to overcoming the climate crisis and, and finding their niche? I guess my final standing sort of talking points would be if you're sitting there thinking like, I can't do anything, first, listen to this podcast. B, listen to the Jocko Willink podcast. He's an ex-Navy SEAL and he talks about this thing called extreme ownership. And the goal of that is to basically, yes, you can't control everything. It's not possible. But what you can control is you, your health, and your attitude. So regardless of the situation, you always have control of these three things. So that would mean you're still in university, still studying, awesome, keep trucking along. 
but start looking for that identity capital. You can still look for identity capital while you're studying. I mean, if I'm just a country bumpkin. If I can do it, anyone else can do it. So I guess that's where I would start look at. Start looking at, okay, what can I do? I've got an internet connection, awesome, what can I start with? Next piece of advice is to start taking advantage of your networks. So post high school network, clubs and society networks, Melbourne alumni network, it's all there for you. Use it to your advantage. The next thing I would recommend, I remember like sitting at home for a while like, oh man, like what am I going to do? Just be a prospector. So every day you think like, okay, for one hour, I'm just going to go prospecting. I'm just going to see what's out there. If that's it, just an hour prospecting and then you can go on with whatever it is you want that day. Because the idea with prospecting is like, okay, you're, you're becoming an opportunist every hour of every day. If you build that habit, you'll start to see that you're going to surround yourself with more like-minded people in your industry and you're also going to start seeing more opportunity in your industry. You miss 100% of the shots you don't take and also of the shots you don't know about. Exactly, yeah. And you do, sometimes you don't even know. Sometimes you're not even aware of it. And so stuff like Project Everest, it was pure chance that I found out about it. I went to a lecture hungover. Like, I, it's crazy how my <laughs> life changed because of that. And you have to get out and get after it. And obviously right now it's tricky, but there's always opportunities. If you want to look for good undergrad, graduate and internship opportunities, Grad Australia is really useful. Yes, it's competitive. So that's why that identity capital comes into it. I have two important sayings that I've told myself for 2020 because we definitely need them. First saying is men, because I'm a man, like whoever you identify with, you can put it in, it doesn't matter. But men have overcome worse odds with less. Never waste a good crisis. Slack, Slack was invented during the GFC, global financial crisis. And now it's used, I use it, I use it all the time, I love Slack. Be resourceful. That's the sort of end game, I guess, of this part. And that's the thing I wanted to share. And this is what this year is showing. Like, you know, the civil unrest in America, the sort of collapse of a lot of supply chains, the difficulties that we've seen are not because of coronavirus. They're a result of a system that needed more effective management, it needed changes, it needed to be improved. And that's what's really cool. Like, yes, 2020 sucks. But like, if we start having this sort of abundance mindset, and start thinking like, okay, what can we do about this? Because that's the sort of approach I'm taking. Like, even though I'm not super duper skilled in this area, basically building my own like little Avengers team to make this abattoir green and clean. And, you know, you can do that with any facet of your current situation. I think that's what's really cool is like being opportunistic and taking every advantage and every opportunity you can, like whether it be traveling, Traveling's a massive one. Like, if someone's been to the same country you've been, you've got a conversation for hours right there. And it's that sort of like, build those connections, improve your communication skills, read books, no matter what it is, like someone will have read your book <laughs> if it's worthwhile. I really love what you're saying because for me, it's not just about the climate. That what's going on with the climate crisis is that it is forcing human societies to reckon with skeletons in their closet yeah a broken system and without this crisis we probably would have been able to continue on ignoring these really huge racial health societal planet inequities that have resulted so really with the climate crisis is it's an opportunity for humans to fix 
everything that's wrong. It's not just about be the climate crisis. Is this is our shot? Because without this, we we wouldn't have you know have to look at ourselves in the mirror. So we the hope is we can overcome this, and when we do, it will be in a far better world. Yeah. Woo. And listen to Hamilton. If you're writing an essay right now and you're feeling like essay writing sucks, <laughs> listen to the Hamilton musical. It's on Spotify. It's also on Disney. So good. Well, thank you so much, Will. It's been so lovely talking to you. And your advice is really relatable and really practical and invaluable um, to me. And I think I speak for the rest of our listeners as well. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Cam. It was awesome. It was a great chat. Thank you.